Welcome to Finely Tuned. In each episode here, we're speaking with people who care about our built environment. This podcast is built by Gridium. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this conversation with Dror Poleg, author of the book Rethinking Real Estate and co-chair of the Urban Land Institute's Technology and Innovation Council in New York. Today, we'll be discussing his new book on how technology is changing the way humans work, live, eat, shop, and travel. My name is Millen, and I'm with Gridium. Buildings use our software for data-driven sustainability. It's quite exciting to have Dror join us today, our first guest author with a new book about to hit the shelves. On the first page of Rethinking Real Estate, Dror states it plainly that, quote, no asset is safe. That's certainly one way to sum it up. Dror, it's thanks to Twitter that we're connected, and it's great to have you join us on the podcast today. Hi, Milan. Great to be here. And thank you for making this effort to pronounce my name properly. You're already in the 95th percentile. The real estate industry includes scores of different people in different roles. Uh, why did you write this book and for whom? So I wrote this book first and foremost for myself. I've always been interested in, in multiple things such as history and technology and sociology and finance. And being inside real estate, which is an industry that I spent almost two decades in, although I never planned to become a real estate person, I keep trying to find interesting ways to to make work exciting for myself. And I've done that since forever. But over the past few years, I realized that many of those things that interest me are suddenly becoming very, very important for everyone else in the industry. So everyone suddenly needs to understand technology and they need to think about sociology and demographics a little more deeply and in a more dynamic way than in the past. And that history and you know finance are suddenly becoming much more interesting and important for people to understand, uh, for both for people inside the industry and also for a lot of entrepreneurs and people that are coming from outside the industry and that suddenly need to understand how real estate works and to have it explained to them in a way that makes sense. Uh, so looking at all this, I just figured that you know someone needs to write some sort of guide to provide this needed context or the missing uh, pieces for professionals within the industry and to provide some guidance and, and background for people from outside of the industry that are coming into it in order to disrupt it or improve it. Thoreau, we've just been through Black Friday and Cyber Monday, and uh, those two heavy retail days just followed the shuttering of uh, Barney's. Uh, should we be surprised by the shuttering of Barney's? So I've lived uh, next to two different Barney stores, one in Chelsea here in New York City and the other one in, in Brooklyn Heights. And to be honest, I was always surprised that they're still in business. The stores always look empty to me. The merchandise looked like it's out of touch with the people who actually walk by the store, uh, both in terms of pricing and in terms of the style. Uh, so I was surprised that they lasted so long. And, and I think it's generally good news that the things that don't work are you know, freeing up space for newer things that might work a little better. I believe you've got some thoughts connecting what we've learned on Cyber Monday and Black Friday to what the future of a department store might look like. Um, what do you think that might be? Yeah. So, I mean, what we saw this year, and, and it's a trend that's been going on for at least 10 years now, 20 probably, is that more and more money was spent on on Black Friday and Cyber Monday, but more and more of it was spent online. So, and, and this year, I think it was extra pronounced. I mean, walking around New York City, you really felt the subdued atmosphere in the streets. You didn't see kind of people going crazy inside stores and standing in line. So money was being spent, but just it wasn't visible in the physical world. And 
one of the things I, I kind of dive into in the book, in the retail chapter, is the history of department stores and how much they have changed and not for the better over the past 150 years. Uh, so in the 19th century, a department store was, was really a cultural center. It was, in a way, the most exciting place in the city, a place to see new things, uh, to experience, you know, almost like a museum, to, to see stuff that is even not for sale and that might not even be for sale for another decade or two, but to go there and see it, whether it is like a new technology like the television or it's an air, airplane that crossed the Atlantic. Uh, so all of these things were presented in department stores and people would go there in order to uh, to experience that. And the department stores themselves were often felt like visiting a home of you know a very wealthy family or visiting a lounge or a salon. Uh, a place where you want to spend time, where you're being served, where you feel like, you know, there's a certain atmosphere that, that attracts you into it. And they also offered all sorts of things that are suddenly coming back uh, into fashion, such as free deliveries and free return, and all sorts of unique financing options that were not available elsewhere. And uh, and even culturally, they were usually on the cutting edge and kind of introducing all sorts of new uh activities and behaviors that were not common anywhere else. So, for example, in London, I think the first bathroom uh, that is dedicated for women and was designed for them and was safe and nice and clean was introduced in a department store. Uh, in Japan, the first mm. place where you could come in and keep your shoes on and not have to take off your shoes uh, in a local business was a department store. So, I mean, a lot of things that were considered faux pas or just like the other businesses or other institutions didn't care about the department stores were actually innovating for because they were so in touch with their customers, which is something that they've lost over the, the last hundred years. We should talk about the tremendous amount of potential, well, not potential, but of dry powder uh, in the prop tech venture space. What does some of your research show that uh, is the trend there? So, yeah, I mean, we've seen over the past few years, about $15 billion or so going into uh, real estate technology companies or prop tech companies. There's different ways to define it, so, I mean, which means there are different ways to measure it, but it's somewhere between 5 right. to 20 billion. In any case, it's a lot of money. And I think we're just going to see more and more of it, uh, maybe not necessarily flowing as venture capital, but flowing as capital in all sorts of, uh, under all sorts of structure and strategies because the real estate industry is one of the last kind of bastions of, uh, of of the old world. Like the, you know, people have invested in software companies and transformed media and other industries that lent themselves uh, to uh, digital disruption much more easily. But today, investors who are looking to spend money on industries that have growth potential and that can absorb a lot of money uh, find themselves very quickly looking at real estate among only a handful of industries that uh, that both need a lot of help and can absorb a lot of capital and have companies within them that can actually deploy huge amounts of capital. And they can deploy it in very risky ways, but still, they at least promise the hope of uh, you know faster growth and better returns than what you get today if you put your money in the bank or you know even in the stock market over the long term. WeWork has stumbled. Do you think this tells us something about the prop tech space or, or what about it might we learn from that? I think WeWork... It's good news for the PropTech space one way or another. I think their presence and you know their earlier large funding rounds are the ones that really jolted some of the largest landlords to to start acting and to start investing in PropTech and start thinking about innovation. You know, uh, 
it's, it's, it hasn't been so long ago that most of these landlords, even two or three years ago, were in complete denial about the fact that anything is changing and anything needs to be done. Uh, so right. seeing WeWork grow and seeing WeWork get so much capital definitely made them understand that, okay, this is not just a little trend. This is not a gimmick. You know, something real is happening and there's a lot of money behind it. That is money that comes from outside the industry in order to take away our lunch. Uh, so in that sense, it's good. I think obviously it would have been better if they were completely successful and they would have IPO'd and they could have completed the, the prop tech ecosystem because then we would have another giant that can actually acquire other smaller companies and support them, which is one of the things that is missing, I think, today still in prop tech. Um, but uh, for better or worse, I don't think anyone doubts that the industry is now being transformed. So even if we were, will fail to be the one uh, reaping most of the benefits from that transformation, I don't think any, any landlord today thinks anymore that business as usual uh, can still work. And, and again, not long ago, most of them were still able to convince themselves that uh, they can just stick to what they know. Let's talk about that. What is the role of active management in real estate? How has that been changing and, and why? So real estate for many investors and many types of assets used to be a relatively passive type of investment. So it's something that is uh, almost like a fixed income thing. You, know, it's, you buy an asset, if it's in a good location and you take care of it reasonably well, it generates a stable coupon every year, you know, 5% or 6% of what you paid for it. And it's enough that you have the money to acquire it and you bring in a manager such as CBRE or Cushman and Wakefield or Jones Lang LaSalle and the manager does a great job and the building works. Uh, today, what we're starting to see in, you know, in office buildings, which which are really the, the quintessential commercial real estate assets because they're so stable, because they're so boring in many ways. You know, they're kind of, they're very vanilla. They're one size fits all. They have a floor plate that is kind of looks the same. doesn't matter who you are. Uh, so these assets are suddenly becoming more and more like hotel or like retail projects. So they need many more hospitality services. The tenants themselves are starting to ask for more flexibility. They're asking for more service. They're starting to choose building based on all sorts of characteristics that can only be attractive to certain customers, but are very unattractive to other customers, uh, which is something that is common in hotels. But WeWork is an example of it as well. So WeWork for half of the world, it looks like a joke and terrible and annoying and stupid. And for the other half, it's like the best thing that ever happened to them because no one ever served them before this well. Uh, and, 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 and that's the opposite of what an office building used to be. So it used to be something that is just like, okay, for everyone, very stable, not flexible, 10 year leases from large companies that, you know, have great credit. Uh, and suddenly it's becoming this extremely dynamic thing that is branded, that requires trade-offs and, uh, you know, pissing off certain people. And that's something that many owners, not just are not ready to deal with, but they actually don't want to deal with it because when they, went into real estate investment to begin with, they went into it assuming that it's a certain type of financial product. And now it's becoming something a little different. It's becoming more like investing in an operating business, uh, which could be a great business, but has a different risk profile, has much more volatile income and require much more uh, love and attention over time. Thor, it was fun to read about uh, the industry's 10 plagues, as you called them, uh, in the advanced copy of the book. Uh, what are them and what are they? And can you give us an example? So the 10 plagues mentioned in the book basically list 
the 10 things that have defined and defended the value of real estate assets and the owners and operators of these assets and how technology is now undermining and redefining uh, each of these attributes. So starting from the meaning of location to visibility, to accessibility, to how easy it is to access capital or information for people that are coming to compete with existing landlords. Uh, all of these things are being redefined by technology. So if we want to use you know, an obvious example, let's say that I wanted to build a department store 50 years ago in the center of a city. So I would go and see that there's a subway line there, that there's a subway line coming, because 20 years in advance, I could know that, that it's being planned. Once the subway is built, I start to build my department store and the piece of land that I bought. And all the people that come into that part of the city now have to go through my department store because they come out of that subway station. So that was a very static, very predictable environment. It was difficult enough to operate then. You know, it took a lot of money, it took a lot of work, and it involved a lot of risk uh, for all sorts of things. But today, if we look at that situation of that department store, so first, a lot of the customers don't really shop in the physical world anymore. So that's one thing that is obvious. Second, people start to move around in, uh, you know, in using ride sharing, for example, which is which took a lot of, a lot of ridership out of public transport, or using micro mobility things such as scooters or e-bikes, or all sorts of other new devices. So it's right. becoming much harder for me to predict how people will move around and to force them into my specific location. And it's also a bit of a bummer for me because I pay to be on top of a subway station, assuming that this is the main way for people to move around for the foreseeable future. And suddenly they start moving around in different ways. And the third thing that is happening is that when I bought this piece of land, I looked at the zoning plan for the area and I made a simple you know, supply and demand calculation and figured out how much other retail supply is going to be there and then you know, figured out how big my project should be. But suddenly we're seeing that technology is enabling all sorts of businesses to sell goods without being in a specific retail area or to selling goods from stores that, you know, that are much more experiential on the one hand or from places that are actually just storage facilities for the distribution of goods. But both of them compete with me uh, and both of them are not traditional retail spaces and don't require the things that a good competitor would have required 10 years ago. So I could have looked at the site and said, oh, you know, yeah, Maybe someone will build retail here, but it wouldn't matter to me. And suddenly it becomes a competitor of mine. And this is just in, in retail where it's the most obvious, but we're starting to see it in office as well for all sorts of reasons. So again, people can work remotely. Uh, people need to move around even when they are in the office. They need access to all sorts of different types of things in order to be happy and productive. They I mean, to move around, again, differently, not necessarily with trains, but with all the things that I described before. Uh, they're expecting all sorts of amenities, such as healthcare or childcare or other things in the neighborhood itself that weren't important uh, 20 or 40 years ago. Uh, so the 10 plagues basically mean that the, the environment itself is becoming much more dynamic and the owner of the asset or operator of the asset need to be much more creative and much more proactive in order to extract value out of it. So it's not enough to just own it and kind of take care of it reasonably well. You have to operate it like an operating business, like a Starbucks or like a McDonald's or like a hotel. What about this is changing? What role does the building owner's strategy for the site have to do with it? Real estate is basically now transitioning from an industry governed by operational effectiveness to an industry governed by strategy. Now, both of these terms come from the work of uh, Michael Porter, who's a Harvard Business School professor, kind of the 
the godfather of strategy and strategic thinking. And operational effectiveness means that you know you have an asset and you have to manage it better than the next person, which is what real estate is and used to be, and and but not for long. So meaning I buy a building, if I can manage it better than the other person that was there before. I'm going to make a little more money, you know, my, my net operating income will be a little higher and then I can sell it at a higher price to the next buyer. Now, in this sense, operational effectiveness means, you know, keeping the, you know, the systems running well, leasing it a little faster, employing maybe half a person less than the other person. So a lot of like very marginal improvements uh, and some of them even involving technology, but involving technology in a way that that everyone else can copy. So, you know, let's say I'm installing this like property management system or revenue management system and all sorts of things that everyone else can, you know, maybe not do as soon as I do, but they, they will all hear about them in a year or two and then they'll all do the same and I'll have to go and come up with that, with something new. So all of that, um, I mean, is no laughing matter. I mean, it's difficult enough and there's only a few great companies that can do it very, very well. Uh, but unfortunately, that's not enough anymore. So because the environment is becoming so dynamic, because there's so much money flowing in and funding all these new competitors, because the tenants themselves are becoming much more demanding with much higher expectations, and at the same time, they become much more fickle and much more easy to uh, to leave and move around, uh, suddenly landlords have to think strategically. And strategically means... Uh, Michael Porter again. So he defines a good strategy with five key attributes. So one, it has to deliver a unique value proposition. So unique value proposition means don't just offer me what the same building next door is offering, but offer me something that is specific to my needs. So going back to something like a WeWork, again, it's not for everyone, but for the people that it is for, it's a wonderful solution. And the same goes for, you know, for some co-living companies, even in the industrial lab, market, you know, companies that specialize in different types of logistics or in cold storage or other things like senior housing or student housing. So very specific categories uh, that serve a very specific customer. The second attribute that uh, Porter refers to is that delivering this value proposition has to rely on a unique value chain. Now, what he means by value chain is a set of activities that the company is doing that is unique. Uh, So again, unlike today where, you know, I just want to lease a little faster or clean the bathrooms a little faster or maintain the elevator a little better. In the future, you're expected to actually do different things. And different things might mean, you know, to do branding, to provide services that the other building is not providing, to use technology that is proprietary, or at least to use off-the-shelf stuff in a way that others are not using, to create partnerships with other brands or service providers that create experiences that are not available anywhere else. The third attribute that Porter identifies is a good strategy must involve clear trade-offs. So we touched on that already. Trade-offs meaning not trying to be everything for everyone, but actually deciding what you are and what you aren't and being willing to piss some people off and to take some risk and to be committed to that path. Four, a good strategy relies on interdependent value activities. And interdependent means that, let's say, if we talk about Common, which is a co-living company, for example. So they have a great brand and a great digital presence. So allowing people to find apartments and look at them and experience them online uh, before they even visit them offline. And sometimes even allowing them to actually lease the apartment without visiting it. So that activity of building the apartment, of building that great digital product 
is interdependent with the fact that the physical activities of this company, uh, they include getting buildings in neighborhoods that are a little out of the way, uh, that are shared, that at least in the beginning were in older buildings. So buildings that would have been very difficult to lease under the normal process, when they're intermingled with that digital product, it makes both of them better. So the activities are interdependent. The building itself wouldn't be as valuable without comments digital layer, and there's many other examples of this. And the fifth attribute that Porter identifies is that a strategy is something that has to be implemented continuously over a meaningful period. So not just to keep trying different things, not to change your tune based on the tenant that just happened to walk into the door, but it has to rely on you know choosing who your customers are, focusing on their needs, and then building your whole model and your whole value chain based on how to be the best at serving that specific customer. I should have warned you about this, but I didn't. I want to know your thoughts on the potential impact from autonomous vehicles. Certainly, it's early days still. Do you think uh, AVs will make cities and urban centers and metropolitan areas more dense uh, or, or less dense? So first, the, I think the most interesting thing about this question is that nobody knows the answer which is yeah. a situation that, again, real estate hasn't faced in a long, long time. You know, trains have been with us for a few hundred years. The car has been around for over 100 years and, you know, really a mainstream thing for, for about 70 years. And suddenly we're facing a new type of mobility that we really don't know uh, what impact it will have. But there is no doubt that it will have a very, very deep impact. Uh, in terms of my thinking, I think flying things will probably have a bigger impact on, on cities over the next 10, 20 years than, uh, than autonomous vehicles. Mm -hmm. The autonomous vehicles that will have a big impact will be those that move things and not people. Uh, and even those that move people, they'll be interesting because they will start moving all sorts of people that don't currently move, whether it is children or old people. Uh, or I mean, so people that assume that we're going to have less cars on the road and not need parking and need less roads, I doubt if that will be the case. Uh, in terms of densification, I think that centers of cities will become more lockable, walkable and will start actually limiting where cars can go or cannot go. Uh, so I think that's an interesting trend that, that will impact the evolution of cities. Uh, and in terms of like the big, big, big picture, I generally think that we'll see centers becoming more dense, more walkable, more governed by humans and things that don't involve cars. And then we'll see at the farther periphery, areas that are becoming popular because they offer all sorts of other lifestyle benefits that the city doesn't offer. So access to nature or clean air or a lot of space. And I think that a lot of the suburbs in between might actually suffer because they, they might have a lot of the, the downsides of a city without the benefits that, you know, some of these farther areas include, uh, which touches into a different thing that is happening now as well, which I think humans are Increasingly, the more digital we are and the more we're connected with technology, the more we yearn and we learn to value the things that, that cannot be reproduced by technology. So things like, again, nature, fresh air, water, uh, the presence of other people. Uh, and a lot of that is not what the current uh, first suburban strip of large cities is, is good at providing. I, uh, since we're sitting here in December, I, when I would normally, at this point in the conversation, ask what you think is next, let me phrase that slightly differently today, Thor, which would be, in December of 2020, what do you think 
we'll be looking back on uh, in 2020? What do you think will have happened over the next year? So we'll say, whoa, that Airbnb IPO thing, it was even worse than that WeWork thing. <laughs> I, I really? Think, I mean, I don't know, but I think, I mean, I think yeah. Airbnb might, might have an interesting bumpy ride over this year. Uh, I hope they figure it out. I, I, I struggle to see how they can maintain their $35 billion valuation at this point, but they still have time to pull a few rabbits out of a hat. So I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. Uh, okay. Second, if there will be a slowdown in the office market, I think we will find ourselves at, at the end of this crisis with an office market that is much more flexible, much more branded much more serviced than the one we currently have today, but that will probably take a few years to uh, to play itself out. So I'm not sure if December 2020 will be the time for it. And what I hope that we will see is the emergence of a few new ways to finance a lot of the innovation in real estate. Because so far, uh, most of these companies, and WeWork is the prime example, have relied on venture capital. And I think for most of the activities that they conduct, venture capital is not the correct source of funding. Uh, and they will have to kind of figure out a new stack that involves some venture capital for the technology and maybe some thin uh, layer of operation and branding, but then a lot of other types of capital to help them buy building or even lease building, but using money that is not uh, so expensive and does not require such such fast growth uh, as the money that comes from venture investors. So I think figuring out the, the kind of prop tech or space as a service capital stack is an interesting challenge. And this year, I think we work, we'll have to make some progress on coming up with solutions. And I hope they do. And that's something that could help the rest of the industry. Well, this has been great, Thor. I really appreciate you taking the time today. And I know our audience will find your thoughts quite interesting. I'll be sure to link to your book um, in the show notes. And yeah, thanks again for chatting. Thank you for having me, Milan. I enjoyed it. Okay, that's a wrap. For more episodes, go to the Gridium blog online or subscribe to Finely Tuned wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>